0: Hi, I'm your host, Yura, and this is Broccoli Book Club, a socially progressive podcast aimed at analysing timely and thought-provoking reads. And this episode is the author interview, which follows the Broccoli Book Club episode on What Have I Done? And today, I'm excited to be joined by its author, Laura Dockrell, an award-winning children's author, illustrator, and performance poet based in London. Laura has a highly successful series of books following the journey of the mischievous 10-year-old, Darcy Burdock. And in 2014, this series was shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. Laura regularly performs at festivals like Glastonbury, Hay, Edinburgh and the London Literary Festival. Her memoir, What Have I Done, documents the experience, the pain and recovery of her postpartum psychosis. This episode contains conversations about mental health. Listener discretion is advised. As with most things, we met through Zoom. I was in my bedroom and Laura was in her partner Hugo's music studio. Throughout the call, you might hear a baby in the background, and that's Jet, the tiny human at the centre of Laura's world. Our conversation was a small window into Laura's busy life as a parent.
1: Well, group. I think that's what's... Um, Triggered it. I just woke up and I sound like Cher and do you believe after love. <laughs> so just for your listeners who are thinking, what on earth is going on here? I was hit with a rare and debilitating mental illness postpartum after having my baby called postpartum psychosis. And when Jet was three weeks old, I was hospitalised in a psychiatric unit. I've never before experienced mental health issues before that. And I had just gone through the trauma of physically giving birth too. So this was a lot of big changes for me. When JET became six months, I decided to write a blog about this experience on a, an Instagram account called Mother of All Lists by Clemie Telford. Partly because I knew things were sort of flying around and circulating that I had got unwell and I wanted to speak for myself what I was experiencing. Partly because people have, again, a very kind of sensationalized version of what somebody with postnatal depression looks like. That's a kind of woman clawing the walls in a white nighty, where's my baby? Maybe a baby killer, which also is just not true. And I wanted to dismantle that. Also because I wanted to offer conversation, help. Um, I was so lucky that I had support and friendship around me to get me through. And in the area where I work, in the arts, I feel we're so fortunate that we can go there and talk about this. Lots of women that I've met since aren't as able to do that. They have to kind of put their office clothes on and get back to the desk and put on a brave face. And also because I put up a picture of myself smiling when I had a baby holding a glass of champagne, like, guess what? Well, I'm a mum when inside I was suffered extreme suicidal thoughts, intrusive thoughts, anxiety. I was a mess, basically, a boiling hot mess. And I was like, I've got to speak up for this. And writing that, I thought would alleviate me and get it off my chest. Actually, it did the opposite. And I got so scared of getting unwell again, I decided to go back on my medication. I didn't want to go out. I just found like it felt like everybody knew, you know, and everyone was watching me. Um, my paranoia kind of increased, suspiciousness increased, insomnia increased. And I just thought, what actually do I do? I don't have any options here. We got approached by lots of people, wanting to turn it into a book, obviously, because of my children's books. I almost felt like I was making a deal with the devil, you know, like, oh, okay. That voice we're talking about was going, oh, what are you going to do now? Go on, strictly come dancing for postpartum psychosis. What are you going to do? Go on, I'm a celebrity, come out of here for losing the plot. I don't think so. And then I was like, oh, I can't actually do this. I can't, as I said before, I can't let... My illness infect my lovely rose tinted world of children's books and la la land, not realising that actually writing about it was about to save my life. And it started writing itself. I turned down the book deal, and I went back, I turned down it again and eventually made friends with an amazing editor called Rowan Yap, who was just said, look, just send me the chapters when you do them. And that's just what I started doing. I wrote it all on my phone whilst Jet was asleep on me. Whenever I could, snatch a minute, I would, which is why most of the chapters are quite short. But I quite liked that in the end anyway. Sending them across. And once they were sent, I never had to look at them ever again. And then about six months later, I went to my publishers and they were like, are you ready to meet it? And I was like, "Uh, okay. The the copy that you're reading is about 85,000 words. It was 275,000 words. It was this big, all written on my phone, all never read back. So this is very different to the usual way that I write, which is reading 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 checking checking and now my phone I can't even type the word spaghetti without my phone being like schizophrenia
0: (laughs) oh my god that's amazing wow that is amazing that should be you know if in this podcast that should be the the thing that we intro with (laughs) oh totally and you know what
1: it's so it's it's so healthy because all of these things what drives everything right everything which is uncomfortable is fear that's what's driving everything. If you see it as science, you see these words used to absolutely, why are they even in my dictionary, the word suicide? You know, now I go to write, you know, soup. Suicide? No, I'm just trying to say soup. But it's normalized it for me now and means my friends have normalized it. We can talk about it. And now my friends can speak to me properly. I can be present for them rather than be like, ooh, that's odd, you know. Don't talk to me about it, that's too heavy. Or go, cheer up, love. No, that doesn't happen with me. It has enriched me so much more. What did you
0: edit out of the book? So, obviously, two thirds of it was gone.
1: Yes. What did I edit out? Some characters, trails of thought. So, like a bigger bit on fear. And also, I had a lot of strange dreams when I was pregnant that I all sort of in my psychosis believed were connected up to my psychosis, were trying to tell me things or show me things. And I Obviously insomnia was such a great part as well of my illness at the beginning and recovery. So we cut all the dreams, but the dreams were, they were a really difficult thing for us to cut, but they were just so long. And also just having to be very mindful that these are real people, though to me, this is my story and I've got free license to an agency to do what I want with it. I just had to trim back on how kind of open I was being on everybody and and, and at the end, uh, giving a lot of, unsolicited advice to people giving me unsolicited advice which my publisher was like that feels like maybe a mum book you know save that for this I was like oh yeah yeah yeah." I hate mummy bloggers but also I'm being a mummy blogger by hating mummy bloggers this is very mummy blogger squared to be honest with you my closest closest family can't even read it my sister hasn't even read it Hugo hasn't even finished it my mum can't read it and I think that's because the nature is so close you know this was very painful for all of them. This was the first big thing that happened in our lives. It was a traumatic explosion for all of us involved. We were only seeing this world from our own eyes, right? So it's like, how do you, it, you especially, and then you've got the psychotic world. So everyone's going, that didn't actually even happen. So mm. you've got to be very, very careful and get your permission. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think once everyone had seen how, my recovery just, if it was a graph, I went from like this kind of middle level to just such improvement once the book began coming together and happening and I was dealing with all these big things. And also so much of my insomnia, for example, was due to the fact that I was trying to work out what had happened. So putting it all to bed in that way, filing it all, I sleep great now, like filing it all like that was just such a weight off my shoulders. I think my family were all like, oh, okay, like the proof is in the pudding, like she is. I don't really know what the proof is in the pudding actually really means, do you?
0: Neither do I. The
1: proof is in the pudding. My my point is, is that my, everyone around me seeing me write this, seeing how much my recovery sped up from writing this, I mean, it's actually been proven scientifically that the more active you are with your recovery, helping others, talking about it, trying to get better, actually is less chance of relapse I can only vouch for that, you know, that, that's the biggest thing that I want to encourage. If anyone comes to me who's experienced an illness like mine or similar, who says I'm thinking of writing about it, if your circumstances are good at home and you've got a good support network, I would say go for it. Because being able to also fictionalise it, read it over and over again once it's done and have that distance, it actually helps you see it as a story now in the past.
0: I'd love to know, Laura, did you read a lot as a child?
1: I did, actually, but I think there's always a kind of misconception as a author that you must be best friends with Stephen Fry and David Attenborough and know every word in the dictionary. And I was a big reader, but I'm like bacteria and I want to live in the life of everything, whether that be fashion or food or um, TV. And I'm not ashamed to say that I get just as much inspiration, you know, from watching a trashy tv program reading a children's book eating a really good bowl of pasta or being nosy in the supermarket all of them count and actually i think being a writer isn't just about reading it's also about living
0: so i'd love to know your journey to being a published author how did that come about you know and when did you start writing seriously so uh reading all the time but also
1: writing all the time and the writing was a big deal for me so i've I always had a notebook by my bed and would always be scribbling, drawing, just keeping journals without even really realising I was doing it. I've got a younger brother and sister, so kind of basically producing them into theatre shows without them really even knowing they were doing it from a very small age. That was kind of my existence, that was all I really knew. And I got to that academic point where I met the big ugly red pen that was always circling, you know, my spelling, my grammar, which did knock my confidence a little bit. And in English, I would struggle because I was always do well in the creative, but you know when it came to the academic side of English or theatre, that's where I would fall away. Practical, I was always fine. So then, what I started doing was actually learning my work off by heart and performing it, and that's how I actually got published. I was really lucky. I had the right person in the right crowd that had seen me at a festival, and um, just transcribed what I was reading out loud onto the page. And my first book, "Mistakes in the Background." came out mid 2000s I think 2008 now it literally was the case of like a guy on a bike coming to pick up the pages each evening and then they just like scanned it all and turned it into a book and then I was like wow I'm actually a published author now but I guess we're kind of taught of these ways you know that you have to do it this kind of you don't really realise there's ways you can creep through the cracks you know you can do this your own way and that's why it's so exciting. Lockdown is going to be very exciting to see how new talent emerges because art always emerges it always breaks through like weeds it's going to come and it's going to be really juicy but also social media is creating all these new ways of people being able to express themselves so it's a really exciting
0: time. Um, And now I have my favourite question I'd love to know what are the three books that have shaped your life?
1: This is a really hard question and you know the reading that I have done since going through the experience I had of of being unwell are the books I wished I had read before I got unwell but they wouldn't have made the most amount of sense so it's a real catch-22 so I kind of feel like I have a before my illness selection of books and an after my illness. Does that make sense? You kind of only really learn what you've been through once you've been through it I mean, this is what life is about, right? When you Once your head has cracked, you're like, oh, this is what old people are talking about when they say life is hard. They're not talking about redundancy and bills, they're talking about this shit, which actually transforms you. So I guess what made me want to do what I do for my job, which was writing children's books, probably was, I was thinking of a book called Meeting Midnight. My Nana bought for me when I was really small, still in primary school, which was my first kind of poetry book by Carol Ann Duffy. And that really kickstarted my love of poetry. I remember once in a being in a bookshop and deliberately pulling my tooth out earlier than what it should have come out purely because I knew my dad was the secret tooth fairy and would exchange the tooth for a book. All the kids in my school liked poems but when that the kind of rhyming poetry left I was still there clinging on enjoying it. That's what showed me that also I really could see how illustration and poetry could marry up words and pictures endorsed each other and that happened with that book where the wild things are by maurice sendak a picture book which taught me that a kind of picture book can be anything and you can put your own reflection doesn't have to spell it out for you jane and peter are going to the shop oh boring i like to know that you can you know from literally in front of you a bowl of soup just lift off rocket ship your brain to somewhere else and you're in a world of monsters that book hardly any words, maybe 500 words and you're completely transported to a new world and you can put your own emotional experience and the artwork is incredible. And then the story of Tracy Beaker by Jacqueline Wilson, which taught me of a little girl who, yeah, whose life wasn't perfect, but her way of looking at the world, I'd never really met a female lead that was just ouchy and grumpy and shouty and expressing herself so articulately and messily and she's flawed and loving and, That's what made me think I really wanna write for children for my job, I think I can do this. But now I literally just drink up memoirs. I love reading and they help me. It's so cliche and after I got ill, I didn't wanna go near books. I didn't really write for a while because I was like, I don't want this experience to bleed into my real life. Like, I don't want this to be a part of my story. Not realizing that was actually hindering my recovery. If you push it away, you resent it and actually it's about going, no, this is a part of what happened to me. I bring it in closer. Actually, now, when my book came out, I felt like I was walking down the aisle with my illness. I was like getting married to it. I was like, yeah, okay, forever now, me and you. And that's helped me so much. Um and but, so sorry, I- sorry to interrupt,
0: but like, isn't that... Actually, the whole point, as you said, of recovery, knowing that it's never really going to leave. It's always going to be there. And you have to make peace with that. And sometimes it does creep up in the darker times or the more unstable times. But you make that sort of peace with it thinking... Yeah, it's always going to be there, but you know what? We have to get on now. It's like that annoying sibling where, you know, you have to get on. Totally. And you know what?
1: So it should. So it should creep up because usually it's a warning for you going, this situation is a little bit hot for me or a little bit cold. I'm not quite cool here. Like, what is going on? And it's uncomfortable. It's really unpleasant. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But when it first happened, I would kick and scream, you know, mentally, emotionally, why did this have to happen to me? I've got a newborn to look after and I can't even put my shoes on. I don't know myself anymore. I can't look at myself in the mirror. To, okay, how am I gonna learn to live with you? To them being like, you and me girlfriend, look what we got ourselves through. And when people go like this, it's not you, it's the illness, I'm like, no, it is me. me." (laughs) Of course it's me, of course it's me. Who else is it? Of course it's me. It's not healthy that teaching because it makes people push that part away from them, which actually scientifically causes you to turn all your adrenaline systems on to lock your body to be, you know, to see this as a threat, which actually is going to reduce you feeling any less anxious. So get on with it in the best, nicest possible way. Actually embrace the unpleasantness because it is you. It is you.
0: Exactly. Or what are you reading? Or what do you read for guilty pleasure? Or what do you do for guilty pleasure?
1: Uh, okay. So, well, I it's not really guilty because I I love food so much. I'm trying to eat more plant based, be a vegan. while well, I'm doing my very best. So, experimenting with food. I'm a sucker for cooking shows. Any cooking show, I'm all over it. Um, salt. Anything to do with salt. So Um, is that the the guilt Probably the guilt of (laughs) pleasure is probably the salt, which I'm allowed to feel guilty about. But you know what? I Actually, guilt is so important. I ain't got time for guilt. Guilt is like not on my radar one bit. People will know, your listeners will know of mum guilt, dad guilt, parent guilt, which is constant. You're guilty for going to work, guilty for not going to work. You can't win. So as soon as I went by guilt, I thought it was gonna take ages to to lift, but it just doesn't. I hear my mouth sometimes. It's not your fault, for example, Perfectly left on time, the bus makes you late. I feel my mouth going so and I just won't say it. I'm like, don't say it. Just just stand there. Just hold it. You didn't make the bus late. It's not your fault. Watch, you'll start helping. So actually, no guilty pleasures, just pleasures, babes.
0: Pure oh, wow. pleasure. What an amazing Pure up pleasure. I love that so much. If there's someone dead or alive that you'd love to have dinner with, um, who would that be?
1: Um, who would that be? Probably Kate Bush, she's alive. I saw her show at Hammersmith Apollo and it was the most incredible show I've ever seen. I know she suffers herself, but her son, well this is the story that I've heard, encouraged her to come back to do these few shows at Hammersmith. When I say tree trunks fall from the sky and burst through grand pianos, a helicopter goes over your head. She drowns in the... It's the most immersive piece of theatre music I've ever seen, and it just totally blew my mind of what a show could look like. I don't even know if she probably earned anything out of it because so much money went into the making of it. You could see the vulnerability in her eyes. And she is somebody that is, you know, adored, famed, celebrated for all the right reasons, but this was just so generous and giving of her. And that's just something I guess I'm really interested in is the relationship between the art and the real life. Where does it start and stop? When do we show and share this with our audience? How much responsibility do we feel because these people By what we do, do we have to then show and share everything with them? But also, I'm just a
0: great fan. You know when you just feel like someone gets it? I love that. I love that. Lastly, I just want to know, are you working on any projects at present that you'd like to share with your readers? Project Raising a Little Person and very
1: excited to announce book club listeners that I am about to do a podcast with Broccoli called Zombie Mum for more real chat. That's gonna be real talk on parenthood, not just from mums, from dads too, not just from parents, also from children who have experienced parents' struggle through the change of having a baby, bringing a new life into this world in all its wild and wonder, but probably off on lots of tangents about mental health. Good and bad, light and shade.
0: Talking to Laura felt like catching up with an old friend. She's so open vulnerable, candid and really chatty, which is exactly what I thought she'd be like after reading her book. And luckily for us, Laura will be continuing this open conversation on her brand new podcast, Zombie Mum, where she'll be addressing all of the unspoken challenges of parenthood and mental health. I want to say a huge thanks to Laura for coming on today's show and thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. Next month, we're reading The Good Immigrant, edited by Nikesh Shukla. Remember, you can read along with us, make suggestions, send in your thoughts via voice note to voicenote at broccolicontent.com. In the meantime, follow us on social media. Our handle is broccolicontent on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Goodreads. I've been your host, Jura, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and all your favourite apps. This podcast is produced by Jarja Muhammad, executive produced by Tony Phillips, and our sound engineer is Ben Williams. This is a Broccoli Production.